Hey, Christ Covenant family and friends watching around our city and uh, even beyond. My name is Jason Dees. I'm one of the pastors of Christ Covenant, and I'm really glad that you've decided to join us. Um, today is going to be a little different than we have been doing over the past few months uh, with our streaming services. Uh, of course, uh, if you've been joining us, we've been having a full worship service streamed, um, and we have been videoing or streaming our services from right here at the Rome Linux location. Uh, but this week, just in light of the mayor's um, uh, instructions to the city uh, about just showing extra precaution in light of growing coronavirus cases, the elders of Christ's covenant uh, have decided, you know what, we need to move our services, still wearing masks, still practicing good social distancing, but we need to move our services outdoors. And so actually that's going to be our plan uh, for the foreseeable future. We just made this decision today, or not today, but this week on Thursday. Uh, and so kind of putting together a streamed worship service from outside uh, was really more than we could do. So uh, I'm going to be preaching to you uh, right now. I'm going to be, we're going to be having a Bible study together um, and we will be having our services today outdoors at the Cochise Club. Uh, our outdoor location might be changing over the next uh, few weeks. So uh, if you want to come and join us, uh, I assure you these are going to be safe environments, again, with great social distancing and mask wearing by the people that are participating. Uh, and then, of course, being outdoors, um, I would love for you to come. I would love for you to come and worship with us. Uh, but we'll be giving you more information about uh, when and where those services will be as we know more in the coming days. Uh, but today, I I'm really excited to open God's Word with you, and I'm really glad that you've joined us. I, I hope and pray that this time uh, of Bible study would be very edifying for us. We're beginning a, a study uh, today, and we're going to be in it over the next few weeks on worship. And I really can't think of a better thing to be talking about right now uh, I, I was asked actually this week, you know, why are we trying so hard to have a worship service, to have a gathering? Uh, and I think that's a great question. I think that is a, a really good question to be asking right now. And I think it really gets to what you understand the church to be. Uh, you know, if the church is just streamed content, uh, as I think some churches probably believe that it is, then the gathering, uh, the coming together of the church is really not that important. Uh, but if the church is a people, if the church has a sense of mission about it, if when the church gathers, it is a visible representation of the kingdom of Christ, if all of those things are going on when the church comes together, well, then I, I think it's very important that we continue to try to gather. I understand that uh, some of you, it's just not safe. It, it, it's really not safe for you to come out, even in an outdoor safe setting right now. Uh, and I don't want you to feel bad about that. I don't want you to feel guilty as if you're doing something wrong. But you should feel a sense of sorrow in your heart, a sense of this is just more evidence of a fallen world. This is just more evidence of a world that is not right. Because it is good when the people of God come together. So I'm really excited about this series. We're going to be talking about more about the Gathered Church next week. There's going to be three sermons that we're going to be looking at. 
why do we worship? Secondly, next week we're going to be looking at why do we gather? So we'll talk more about all of this next week. And then the third week, I'm really excited about this, how do we gather? Uh, but I want to begin today asking the question, why do we worship? And our scripture reading for today comes from Psalm 19, very famous passage of scripture. If you're watching from home, grab a friend, grab your Bible, and read along with me um, as I read aloud from Psalm 19. The psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And then he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit is to the other end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. He goes on in verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from any hidden fault. Keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray uh, together. Father, I thank you for these words. I pray that they would be edifying to me and to anyone listening today, uh, I pray that the result of them would be here as the psalmist prays, that the words of our mouths, that even the meditations of our heart would be acceptable to you, O Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look into this text, I, I want to look at this big question, and I think it really answers it for us. Why do we worship? And, and I want to look at three things with you today. Uh, we worship when we see the work of God, when we hear the voice of God, and we worship when we understand the benefit of God. We worship when we see the work of God, hear the voice of God, and when we understand the benefit of God. So let's begin here at the top. We worship when we see the work of God of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The word worship comes from the old English word. I think it's really helpful. Worthship. Worthship. So you worship, you are turned toward whatever it is that you ascribe worth to, that you are declaring to be worthy. Whatever 
you think is worthy of your attention, that's what you give attention to. And, and thus, that's what you worship. And, and here's the deal. Everyone is a worshiper. Everyone is ascribing worth to something. You know, an author that I've enjoyed reading, he's not, was not a Christian. He's, he's, he's dead now, but he's not, was not a Christian. Um, but I think he just observed some things in the world in a very profound way is, is David Foster Wallace. And, uh, he, he puts it this way. He, he talks about worship in, in this way. He says in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship, be it Jesus or Allah or Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble, tru- uh, four noble truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles is pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeletons of every great story. But the whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. David Foster Wallace is right. We are all worshipers. We are all ascribing worth to something. And it's never enough. It's eating us up. It never really satisfies. This is why so many people have a feeling of emptiness all the time. This is why we need something else in life to look forward to. This is why we are rarely content. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a book called Surprised by Joy. And, and in the book, he, he translates the word joy from this German word, Zainzut. So whatever you think of when you think of the word joy in the traditional sense, he really in this book is meaning it to mean this word Zainzut, this idea Zainzut. And, and Zainzut is a kind of joy or happiness or hope maybe or longing that, that leaves you both happy and sad all at the same time. It, it leaves you wanting more. It, it leaves you happy in the experience that you're having, but not content in the experience you're having. Uh, longing, desiring for more. I, I think you could say it this way. Zainzut is like an appetizer, right? It's, it's really good. It's really tasty. But it actually just makes you more hungry than you were before. Um, I uh, was on vacation last week, and we went to this great restaurant, and we got the stuffed mushrooms, right? You, you know the stuffed mushrooms? Like, they're great, but, the, you know, you only ever get enough to where you get, like, just one mushroom, right? Everybody in the table gets one, and so, you know, of course, I only got one mushroom, 
And uh, I loved it. It was delicious. But it, all it did was make me more hungry. This is Zanzut. This is the idea of Zanzut. And, and, and C.S. Lewis describes it, or he translated it, as I said, as the word joy. So here's from the book. He says, all joy or all Zanzut reminds. It is never a possession. It's always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. And look, a lot of our worship does this. It makes us happy enough to continue to worship. It is whatever we're worshiping or ascribing worth to, but not so happy as to actually satisfy us. And here's the deal. You're all worshiping something. Your affections are all pointed to something. The question becomes, though, as David Foster Wallace asked, does it really satisfy you, right? Is what you're ascribing worth to, is what you're pointing your affections toward, is it really satisfying you? Is it really enough? And the answer is, the object of your worship will only satisfy you when the object of your worship is worthy of your worship, right? The object of your worship will only satisfy you when the object of your worship is actually what you were created to worship, when it's worthy of your worship. And whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, you and I were created by God to worship God, to bring God glory. You could put it this way, God is the only meal big enough to fill your soul. God is the only one big enough to actually satisfy you, to actually leave you content and full and not needing more. As Augustine famously wrote in his Confessions, my soul is restless until it rests in you. My soul is hungry until it rests in you. My soul has only experienced appetizers until it eats on until it feeds on the worship of the living God. Everything else in all of creation is only the stuffed mushroom. It's only an appetizer that leaves you wanting more. And, and here's the deal. Here's the goal. This is my job. The goal of the preacher is to get you to look beyond the appetizer. It is to, to help you realize that there's a lot of things in creation that are good, but they are intended to help you see that there's actually something behind them that's better. There is something behind them that is more. It's to get you to go beyond the small and temporal joys of this life and to understand what you were truly created for. And that's exactly what this psalm is about. That, that is Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. You ever look up at the heavens? Yeah, it's just, as I said, I was on vacation. We were out west. And I love, one of my favorite things about going out west is the western sky. The air is dry. The air is clear. The skies are big. And, you know, out, out there, you, you, know, you see these vast skies, you, amazing sunsets. You go outside at night, and there's stars, and it's gorgeous. And, and, and you know, these... You see a sky out west, and you can't stop looking at it. It's mesmerizing. It's beautiful. It's, it's gorgeous. Skies are amazing. This is what the psalmist is saying. The sky, it's awesome. The stars, they're amazing. But 
they are all pointing to something even more amazing, even greater, even more grand. Verse 2. And he uses to even say that they're saying something to you. The creation is saying something to you. Day to day pours out speech, right? Every day the created world is saying something to you. Night after night, night to night, it's revealing knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. Basically saying, just, just wake up, look around. God is speaking to you. Their voice goes out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. All right, you see what the psalmist is saying here? He is saying the sky specifically, but really all of creation is declaring something. All of creation, everything that you see is saying, there is a God behind me that's even better than me. The psalmist is saying that everyone experiences this. Look at the middle of verse 4. It says, and then he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens. Its circuit is to the other end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. So if you have felt the heat of the sun on a cold day, then you have heard this voice. You have had God declare something to you. God is calling you into himself. This is kind of like what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. He says, for his invisible attributes, talking about God, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse all the things that God has made, actually their purpose is to actually point to the God who made them. But here's the deal. <clears throat> the created thing can be so good. It can be so amazing. I mean, the stuffed mushroom can be so delicious that you get sidetracked worshiping it, worshiping the created thing, rather than worshiping the one who created it. And this is essentially, and I want you to hear this, this is essentially what pagan worship is. This is idolatry. In the ancient world, you had pagan gods. So like, for example, Zeus, you've heard of Zeus, you know, Zeus was the god of the sky, right? This is Psalm 19. You go outside and you say, you don't say the heavens declare the glory of God, you say the heavens are awesome, they themselves must be a god. Or Poseidon, the god of the sea. The sea, it's massive, it's powerful. It itself must be divine. Or Athena, the goddess of wisdom, right? Wisdom is so good. We, we should worship wisdom. It's so good to be wise. Or Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty. What's better than love? What's better than beauty? These are things that the, 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 the human heart, would say, seeing creation wrongly, we should be worshiping these things. This is what pagan worship is. But, but this is not true worship, right? We're not called to worship the created order. We're actually called, and this is my job, to get you to look beyond the created order, to see the God behind it. And I just want to warn you, even those of you who are Christians, Christians can very easily begin having a worship that's actually very pagan. It's very easy to worship the natural world and not the God of the Bible. It's very easy to, Christians are 
really bad at this, to worship, for example, the goddess of Athena, the goddess of wisdom, to desire wisdom, to desire what can God do for me, right? How can God's wisdom make my life better? And and your worship is actually more directed at you and your life and you making good decisions and not on him, not on the one who's behind the wisdom. It's very easy for Christians to worship the goddess Aphrodite, to to want this great experience, right? To have this experience of love and of emotion and to kind of move their Christian life becomes just experiencing one thing after another and that is the fullness of their worship. It's not directed at the character and the fullness of who God is. It's, It's directed at some experience that you can have. It's very easy for Christian worship to become pagan worship. And and, and this happens when we begin worshiping the created thing rather than the creator. But I want you to hear this. This is the problem with all pagan worship. As David Foster Wallace said, it always leaves you empty and wanting more. It doesn't fill you. It's an insatiable desire until you are able to look past the created thing to the one who created them. The heavens, as great as they are, declare the glory of God. The sky, as masterful as the sky can be, proclaims God. It points to the character, the person, the fullness of God. We worship, we rightly worship. When we see the work of God, but when we can look through the work of God to God himself. But secondly, and I love this part of the passage, we we worship when we begin to hear the voice of God. Look at verse 7 with me. Again, such a helpful part of the passage uh, here. Verse 7 through 10, this just overflow of praise for the word of God. You know, it's a fascinating time right now. Everyone is confused, right? Everyone wants to say the right thing. Everyone wants to do the right thing. Everybody kind of wants some moral high ground. You don't want to say anything that would be offensive. You don't want to say anything that would put other people off. Everybody kind of feels like they're under the microscope. It's very hard in this time to have a free exchange of ideas. You know, even Paige and I were talking this week about, well, you know, this group of friends kind of believes this, and this group of friends believes this, and if we put them together, they may offend one another. I mean, it's a very, very complicated time. And I think people are confused, and they're frustrated. And hopefully you're asking the question, is there anything that transcends, right? Is there any anchor of truth that I can actually hold on to? And what the psalmist is saying here is, yes, the law of the Lord, verse 7, is perfect. Is there a law that won't fail you? Is there a law that transcends imperfections? Is there a way that you can really live by? And the psalmist here is saying over and over and over again, yes, there is a law that is so perfect, and here's it goes beyond that, and it says that it can revive your soul. No, I want you to hear this. In the same way that seeing the work of God should lead you to look beyond the thing that is created to the one who created it, in the same way, the voice of the Lord, the law of the Lord, 
calls you to look beyond the words. It calls you to look beyond the law to the lawgiver. If you get stuck just looking at the law, just hearing the words, you'll become a Pharisee. You'll become miserable. If Christianity is just a a forma to you, if it's just a law to live by, ultimately it will kill you. It will destroy you. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. John Bunyan says it this way, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The purpose, again, just as as the purpose of the created things is to get you to see beyond them to the one who created them, the purpose of the law is to do the same thing. It's to call you beyond the law. God is calling you through the law, through his word. He is calling you to himself to know him. The law revives because it calls you not just to know a law, it calls you to know God. J.I. Packer died this week. And, um, you know, I I know if you've been around me, I've mentioned Packer. His writing uh, impacted me in in an enormous way. I say as a young man, but really throughout my whole life. I mean, he, he was just a big part of what I did my PhD study in. Um, I first read Knowing God when I was in college, um, and it, it, it set off in me a desire to know God more fully, uh, to know his word more fully, a, a hunger for theology. So enormous impact on my life. But of course, you know, the directive of so much of Packer, I mean, his seminal work was knowing God, but that was really the directive of so much of his writing. It's to bring people in. So you, you can't just know something about God or know God in a sort of self-help kind of way, but you can actually know God. You can actually know the living God. He said, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for, that you are here in this life for, is to know God, Well, then most of life's problems fall into place on their own accord. What he is saying here is that the law, it has the power to revive you because it can actually lead you to know God. And once you know God, once you know God, it's not that everything is easy in this life. It is everything has a place in this life right? You understand where everything goes. Everything has been made sense of. When you know God and when you know his word, you can actually make sense of this life and your soul and that is revived. And if that's true, then the law isn't heavy. This isn't a heavy passage. This is a life-giving passage because these words, they're not just words. These aren't just ascriptions that you have to live by. Again, it's not just a, a forma that you have to fit yourself in. No, it's an invitation to know a living God who has revealed himself, who has spoken. The psalmist goes on, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Is there really a testimony that will steady us, that is sure, that we can count on, that everyone can understand? The psalmist here says, yes, yes, there is. There is steadiness. That There is a place you can go and rest and not be unstable. 
You know, in this humanistic, secular world that we live in, I want you to hear something. A humanistic world, even though it claims to be so unifying, will always divide people. It will always divide people. Because if, if, if the humanistic way, if, if the, the fulfillment or the, the vitality of human beings is the hope that we all have, right? If human beings can solve their own problems, if we can make our way, if that's the hope that we all have, the, the problem with that is, is evil still exists. Evil still exists. Disagreement still exists. Wrong still exists in the world. And so the humanist secular person will always do, you know who they'll always blame when they see evil, when they see wrong, when they see problems with the world, they'll always blame. You know who they'll always blame? They'll always blame them, <laughs> right? It's always their fault. There, there's never introspection in humanism. It's always them. It's always those people. It's always the people on the right. It's always the people on the left. It's always white people or black people or illegal immigrants. We, why is this world so categorized right now? Why, why? Well, because this is, this is what humanism does. It's not us. It's not people like me. It's them. They are the problem. And look, here's the deal. Even Christians can do this. Christians are notoriously bad at doing this. Taking pride in our own understanding of righteousness or the law, we can have an us and them too. And I just want you to hear this. That is not Christian. That's actually Darwinian, right? So if you, if you find yourself in, in some sort of self-righteous moment, that, that's, that's never the Christian way. That's, that's never what God has called us to in Christ. You need to repent of that. And, and I just want to hear this. Any group or leader or political movement or whatever it is that you find, man, I am identifying with this. This is going to steady me. This is going to make sense in my life. I just want you to hear this. It's always going to fail you. That There is only one Way There is only one Lord who is sure, who is steady, and it is God. The testimony of the Lord is sure. You can stand on it. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Oh, this is good. The law of the Lord, if you really know God's law in a way that leads you to know him, if you know his precepts in a way that leads you to know him, you know what the mark of your life should be? The mark of my life should be is joy. You ever know a Christian that just can't be happy about anything? I would say that that, that, that person is not a believer. That's not Christianity. Christians are joyful people because our own Lord Jesus is full of joy. And if you know him and if you know him in his word, then it rejoices the soul. The commandment of the Lord is pure enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. There is a purity and a cleanness that comes when you really know God that creates this, this beautiful fear of the Lord. You know, Rainer, my four-year-old, he's in a great stage right now. He's kind of sizing everything up. Right? He's, he's making sense of the world. You know, is this faster than this? Is this bigger than this? And I have a friend uh, who's 6'10". Okay, his name is Rafa. He's 6'10". And we hung out with Rafa a few weeks ago. And, and Rainer keeps saying things like, well, I know Rafa is taller than you, but I know he's not stronger than you. And, and what's happening in Rainer's little mind is he's disturbed that there's somebody that's taller and bigger than his dad in the world. 
Because in his little mind, this typical son-to-father admiration was certainly true of me when I was a child. In his little mind, and still today, his little mind, he his dad is the biggest and strongest and toughest guy in the world. And there's a fear there, right? He, he, Rainer, in a sense, fears me, but it's, it's not the kind of fear that creates distance between us. It's actually the kind of fear that creates closeness between us. It's, it's the kind of fear that he, he desires. He, he wants a dad who's big and strong and can take care of him. It's the kind of fear that produces respect and admiration, And this is the kind of fear that when you really get to know God, you'll have. It's clean. It's good. It endures. Here's the truth. As Rainer gets older, he's going to learn that his dad's not the tallest guy in the world. His dad's not the strongest guy in the world. His dad's not the smartest guy in the world. I'm going to become more and more human to him. His, His fear for me, in a sense, will get less and less and less. He'll still love me, but I'll be more and more normal to him. But I just want you to hear this. The more you get to know God, the true God, the more you get to love him, the stronger you see that he is, the smarter and more wise he is, the bigger he gets. His a fear of him endures forever. And if you know him and love him, you will endure with him. Verse 9 says, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, drippings from the honeycomb. The rules, right? When you really know God, the rules, I mean, that word can be so harsh. But so the rules of the Lord, when you really know God, the rules of God are sweet. You want to hear his words. Because again, they don't, they're not just words. It's not just a form, right? They lead you beyond themselves. They lead you to God. This is what the voice of God rightly does. When you see the work of God, if you become so enamored with the work that you can't look beyond it, you will become a pagan. This is essentially pagan worship. If you hear the word of God and you become so enamored with the voice or with the words of God that you can't look beyond it to God, you will become a Pharisee. But when you can look beyond his work and and you can go beyond his law and, and find God, Well, this is really what it means to be a worshiper, to know a living God and to worship him. But there's one more thing we see. We worship God when we see his benefits or understand his benefits. Look at verse 11. Moreover, by the words, by his commands, your servant is warned in keeping him and going God's way. There is reward Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden falls. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So when you begin to see the work of God and hear the voice of God, when you're to look through these things and actually know God, you'll begin to worship him. And you know what happens as you worship God? You begin to trust him. When you begin to trust God, you begin to see his benefits. You begin to realize, as John says in John 1, 4, in him is life. This is where life is. 
This is where life is. You will see his benefit. You will see the the security and reward of keeping his work. You will want to stay away from sin. You will want to follow after God. Not in a performance-y, I hope God notices that I'm not sinning here kind of way, but in a joyful, this is right, this is good kind of way. You will love his truth. You will love to worship him. Worship, in a sense, is a sign of surrender. It's saying, I I am so tired of battling with God for my life. I realize that my purpose is actually to bring glory to God, and I want to find myself in his way. I want to, as we've been saying, I want to do as God does. I want to think as God thinks. I want to feel as God feels. And when this begins to happen, your prayer will become like verse 14. Let the words of my mouth... And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Which is really a prayer to say, O Lord, let let my words, let my very heart reflect you. May my whole life be one of worship to you. We've looked at why do we worship. But, But as we close, I just want to take a minute. And, and really quick, answer the question, what is worship? Looked at why do we worship when we see the beauty of God, the work of God, when we hear the voice of God, we understand the benefits of God. We're able to look through these things and, and experience the fullness of God. We're, we're able to see him for all that he is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're able to see his character. We were to see his nature, and that leads us to worship. But what is worship? What does it mean when we're actually worshiping God? And, and, and ultimately, I just want you to hear this. Worship is reflection. You, you worship God rightly when you image God rightly. God has made us in his image. In the ancient world, pagan worship, ancient worship of gods, you had temples all over the ancient world. If there was a if there was a, the god Baal, for example, there were statues of Baal all over the ancient world. They had temples with statues in them. And in those temples, the, the statue, the image of Baal in the temple would direct people toward that god and reflect the glory of that god, okay? Well, this is exactly what God has set out in us that we, in a sense, would be living images, living temples. That as people see us and understand our character, as it reflects the character of God, then God would be glorified in us. We would rightly reflect him. That is, the meditation of our hearts and the words of our mouth, as as they are reflective of God, as they are imaging God, then God would be glorified in that. But of course, the words of our mouth don't reflect the words of God so often. And the meditations of our heart don't reflect the meditations of God's heart. The truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, we're failed worshipers. We don't often look beyond the created thing. We're so enamored by the created thing and not the creator. So often we, even with God's word, we we take God's word and try to use it for 
our own benefit. We try to find some sort of self-righteousness through it. We become pagans. We become Pharisees. Our words and our hearts don't line up with God. But there was one whose heart and whose words did line up with God. It's been said, we've been in the Psalms for several weeks now, but it's been said of Jesus that he was the true psalmist. He's the fulfillment of all the Psalms. He was the one who came as a man and as a man beheld the glory of his father, beheld the created world, and it made him, it drew him into intimacy with his father. He was the one who loved the word of God, not not for the sake of the words, but because it drew him into intimacy with the Father. He was the one who saw the benefits of God, who always kept his way pure. He was the one who the words of his mouth and the meditation of his heart were always pleasing in the sight of God. He reflected God perfectly. As God looked on him, he reflected the glory of God. You see, on the cross, God, the Father, actually turned from his Son. The face of God that had so rightly and purely and cleanly shined on his Son, that the Son reflected perfectly, it turned away from his Son. Just as, just as we have turned our backs on the Father, just as we have become enamored by created things, just as we have fallen into self-righteousness, and turned, our, turned our face away from God, God, in retribution, for our sin, turned his face upon, away from the Son, away from his Son, Jesus. Jesus took on what we deserve. Jesus endured the punishment that we deserved. But in him, I want you to hear this, in him, because he has done that for you, because he's done that for me, in him, you can actually find yourself once again in the gaze of God, in the delight of God. If you repent and turn to Jesus and follow his way, you can be a restored worshiper. You can rightly worship. You can rightly reflect God's glory. And I want you to, I want you to hear this. As you see this, as you see how good this gospel message is, and how deeply God loves you, and, and, and how much, even though we are all failed worshiper, he desires to restore us back to once again be his image bearers, rightly reflecting his glory. As you see this, I tell you, it'll only draw you deeper in. It'll only make you want to worship him all the more. And so I, I invite you, just at this time, there in the quietness of your home or wherever you're listening to this, just, just a pause with me. If, if you feel comfortable, just to bow your head with me. And let's just offer a prayer of worship to the Lord. Father, we, we, we come before you today as people who want to see your goodness. Lord, we look around us and, and we see these amazing things that you've created. And Father, I pray that these good things, good things like the natural world, Good things even like work and money and food and provision that are all around us all the time. I pray that they would never be so distracting to us that they, in a sense, would become divine to us, but that we could look through them and see, Lord, that, that they're all pointing us to something better. I pray, Father, that as we hear your word, your word wouldn't become for us some sort of 
tool that we use to prop ourselves up, but it would be the thing that actually draws us to know you. We pray, Father, as we, we see your benefits, we, we wouldn't just worship you in some sort of pragmatic sense, but no, we would, we would love your way and delight in your way. Father, that you would draw us further in. Father, may we look to Jesus, the true worshiper, who has called us into worship, who's, who's actually made a way for sinners like us to come back into worship. As we look to him, Lord, may we be found acceptable in your sight. So, Lord, give us faith to look to Jesus, to look to you, to worship you as you've designed us to, Lord. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thank you for joining us today. I'd love to connect with you. And so, actually, there's a couple of links right below the screen. If you have any questions for me, you can always uh, visit us on our webpage. You can find my email address there. It's just jason at Christ Covenant. You can text us at the text to pastor line. Uh, you can even fill out a connect card right there under uh, the channel uh, here on YouTube. I'd love the opportunity to connect with you. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you again next week.